I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hello, it's that time again um, when I do an intelligent speech and I do them somewhat infrequently and the holding point intelligent speech is that I just kind of do them whenever I want when I bump into somebody who just like blows my skirt up really just makes me feel kind of like a little bit excited and just uh, fills me with uh, human goodness really as some of you know I'm a, somewhat of a devotee of Clubhouse and uh, the great new social media platform when you can just talk to randoms basically um but as is the way with these things you kind of coalesce around people of a like mind uh, a couple of weeks ago i was in a room and there was this wonderful disembodied voice uh, kind of talking on high uh, about poles of wisdom and humor that gentleman w- was eddie brill who is um a comedian of some repute and and kind of what i realized is that comedians not <clears throat> Uh, you know, to say that a comedian is funny is only half or at least part of what they do. Also, what a comedian is actually is a philosopher because they have a unique perspective on life. You know, just just the way that they construct their comedies to take common or garden things, which we all see and we all do, but to realise the absurdity or the humour or the pathos in it. So, um, Eddie Brill, I'll put it to you, sir, that you're not just a comedian, you're a philosopher. You know, I don't think of it in terms of labeling it or here's my philosophy because sometimes I'm silly and sometimes I get deep you know a little deeper in a subject I like to get underneath the surface as much as I can I mean it's easy to skate along the surface but I pretty much enjoy playing below that surface and sometimes it comes to my philosophy or more than philosophy it's my perspective I think that's a better way to describe it well, but um, how, how does that how is that different from from philosophy your 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 perspective um i guess your perspective no i you know you're right i don't think there's a major difference but i don't look at it as like i'm being philosophical i look at it as going okay here's here's how i see it it might not be right all the time might not be right most of the time but you can argue with someone's perspective you can only either enjoy it or find you know maybe a commonality between the that perspective or you can disagree and have a really frank fun discussion and then break into philosophy but yeah you're right it's not completely different i think i'm more you know to really be honest i think i'm just shuffling away or pushing away compliments you're saying well you're a philosopher and i'm like oh yeah i'm from brooklyn you know what i mean it's like doesn't mean you can be from brooklyn and not have be a philosopher took me years to learn to say thank you so thank you 
<laughs> but you're talking about grief, and that's that's that that was the time when I just said crumbs. Uh, I, I needed to talk to you more. You you told a really beautiful story about a, a friend of yours that had passed away some years ago, but you still, a group of you, a group of his friends, still meet up the anniversary of his passing. Um, you know, there's a guy named Adam Roth. You know, Adam Roth is uh, was an incredible guitar player, played with many great bands. Uh, I know him since 1976. We went to school together. We, uh, we moved, you know, together to different places around the world. His family, my family, you know, it's that kind of best friend, you know, like, so there's another one, his name was Adam and there's Chris. So the three of us, you know, we, we all went to school together. We all were freshmen together in college and we really hit it off and we had so much fun. We shared so many incredible experiences and we're very creative at the same time doing music and comedy and sketch. And it was just so powerful. Um, you know, and everyone dies, as we know, I've had a lot of death, a lot of grief in my world, lost a brother, lost a sister in their thirties. I lost stepfather in his thirties. Um, but in nine, in 2015, our friend Adam got a cancer kind of a, you know, a judgment that, you know, it's that he wasn't going to live very long. And I had learned sort of some health things that he might have had a fighting chance if he would have done something a little different than the path that he and his friends or his family chose to to go on. And, you know, because Sugar, Beth, Cancer's best friend is Sugar. So in his, you know, trying to get him better, there was some sugar involved. And it was like pasta and the Similac kind of a drink. And I'm like, no, those are not good. He died pretty quickly in 2015. So myself and Chris, who I mentioned earlier, and two other guys who were like his best friends from this part of the era of his life formed the Gang of Four. There's a great band called the Gang of Four, which is one of my favorite bands ever. But we call it the Gang of Four. And every month we go have dinner and tell stories about Adam and share the great experiences and the laughs we had and the craziness and the, and the beauty. And twice a year, on May 16th, his birthday, and on December 16th, the day he passed, about 30 of us get together and do a big dinner. And uh, last year we couldn't do it because of the pandemic. So we had a big Zoom thing. So we re we got together for the April uh, Gang of Four in person for the first time since February of last year. And then we had the dinner uh, just a few days ago. First of all, it's great to see everyone. You know, we're all brought together from different walks of life by this human being who touched so many lives. So... It's really, really wonderful to be able to keep him alive. His son, his parents are at the dinner. I mean, it's, you know, you celebrate life more than you mourn the death. That that was just one of the many little beautiful things that, which you, you said the other day. And, um, Philosophical things that I said. Well, and, and, you know, and, and I think, like, my, my parents are West Indian. And that is very much definitely the West Indian view on on a funeral, on, on a passing, that um, you show up and, yes, you, you mourn, but actually this is a celebration. This is everything that person accomplished. And part of their accomplishment is all those people who were actually there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really visceral way of stating the power of that person's life because all the people that are there. 
you know. And um, being a West Indian parent growing up in England, I remember always being shocked as a, as a child how many of my white English friends had never been to a funeral. And the parents would say, oh, no, it's too sad. It's too solemn. You know, you can't go. Whereas my parents, you know, always encouraged it because uh, death is an integral part of life. But then again, yeah. what you're there is you're there, you're there to celebrate, to celebrate a life. Right. But, you know, sometimes there are scenarios like, you know, say people are wiped out by a virus or people are wiped out by a hurricane or, you know, and you still celebrate their life. But there's, <clears throat> it's a little tougher sometimes when it's, you know, they're not living their full life and then something from nature or something that could have been, you know, stopped, uh, that isn't stopped, and then people die needlessly. Or, again, nature comes in and, and comes to play. So, I mean, I could see I see a, uh, a hurt and a sadness. Like, you can be walking with someone, and all of a sudden they make a right instead of a left, and they get hit by a bus, and it's over. And it, boom, you... You never expected it, you, you know, and it's freakish. If you would have made that right, you would have been dead too, you know, kind of thing. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. So you just have to keep moving forward as much as you can. And uh, there's a song by Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys called Life is for the Living. And that's what we do. We live, we, my family, very close, very tight, very loving. We, we live strong for the people who are here. Oh, your family from Brooklyn. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, myself and my sister were born in Brooklyn to parents that were born in Brooklyn. My parents, my grandparents from all over the world, a really mixed uh, batch. But my uh, mom remarried and we moved to Florida for, for uh, I guess, just before my 12th birthday. And she had three kids with my stepfather. So the only people who are alive are two of those boys. Um, my sister passed and one of one of the boys passed. One brother lives in New York and one lives in Florida. The one in New York I see often. The one in Florida I haven't seen since last January. And uh, they're coming to visit in a couple of weeks. At last, it looks like we slowed a bit, surely putting this kind of COVID pandemic slightly behind us. Things are slowly getting back back to normal. Um, I, I take it that the pandemic must have nixed your stand-up career. You know, you, you can't be going to comedy clubs. I was on fire before the pandemic hit. I was really right. You're on fire in a good in, way. Yeah, in a very good way. In a way that you didn't. I didn't want you to put it out. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was having so much fun at the clubs and ad living and playing and being honest and you know, playing is really what it was. And I was in so great what, rhythm. What, what does being honest mean uh, to you exactly uh, in your comedy? Um, being vulnerable. You know, showing all sides of you. You know, I mean, I we can all, like, you go on a date, you're going to bring your best you to the date. You're not going to say, yeah, you know, when I was little, I, uh, you know, I hated cats. Not, I love cats, but I'm saying, you know, you don't, you don't go on the date like, oh, look, I'm a jerk, okay? I'm, I like you now, and in three months, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sick of you. You know, you don't, you bring the certain part 
that you think that other person likes mm-hmm. uh, to the date. And they do the same thing. You're not on a date, you're in a play. And you each have your lines, you know, and you ask the questions. And meanwhile, you're thinking, I hope I meet someone that I want to hold close and kiss and and who we can share good ideas together. But you never talk about that at the beginning. It's more like, you know, so how many parents do you have? Or, you know, how many, um, you know, like two? Really? Oh, that's interesting. You know, so the same thing about on stage, you know, I'm going to show that not only, am, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm a good person and I do good things. Then I make a lot of mistakes. And, uh, you know, I had a joke once and not proud of the original joke. It was about living in Florida and seeing all these Canadians down there because uh, in Hollywood, Florida, many Canadians in the 70s had moved down and bought property and all these hotels along the beach. So you go to the beach and you see all these incredibly uh, beautiful women from Canada with these French accents or speaking only French and their husbands who were not as attractive and short and fat wearing a Speedo and something that you would think that, you know, on the outside wouldn't attract people. So my joke was more like, how do these women find these men attractive? And and I made a very, you know, judgmental thing where I said it was about the money. Maybe these guys had money in their Speedo or and it was to that effect. But in reality, when I wanted to be honest about it, I was jealous. And that's what was going on. You know, who says that these guys aren't fantastic and that they make their women happy and that the women make their men happy and that they laugh so much together and they both like the same movies and they, you know, they love dancing and all that stuff. So what I did is I rewrote the ending of the joke and I said, you know, maybe there's money involved or maybe these guys are nice guys and they're not judgmental pricks like I am. And, you know, so then the joke was funny because or got laughs. Because really, I was looking down to what really was behind it all, instead of going the cheap, cliche route of saying money is the only thing that attracts people. How old was that joke? The original joke, probably 20 years old, 25 okay. years old, all right. 20, 25 or more. You don't think you're a judgmental prick anymore, though, do you? No. I mean, there are times when I find myself being judgmental and I stop myself. Because what happens is we evolve as we get older. We could choose to evolve. But, so at I'm, what point, but at what point, though, Eddie, did you go, you know what, I'm not a judgmental prick anymore? But what, what, was, what was that kind of instance? Or tell us about that year, you know, pre and post, where you go, you know what, I can live and let live. Yeah, I don't know the date or the year or the era, but I know it was a time when I started looking at life is short and to enjoy it and to um i guess there was a thing i did in 2001 maybe um which crazy is over 20 years ago when i did it that it was working with a bunch of people sort of finding your truth and getting rid of the veneer and the bullshit and i think that's really when it it hit me that people said well some very honest person said to me you know you're only showing your good side and uh, what who are you all the way around and then when I realized that, things started flowering for me. It was like, oh, wow, yeah, I'm all these different things, and I'm evolving into less of that guy I was 25, 30 years ago. You know, that's what the problem in, there's so many bullies on the internet and so many people hiding behind a computer who are looking to pounce on someone's past and and, and trash them for what the way they originally thought instead of celebrating how they've uh, grown and evolved as a human. And, you know, it's it's so unfair 
to do that to people, especially with the power of the internet now. I mean, look, you and I are chatting together here. Um, we're in different places. We have different backgrounds. And it was just some one night you happened to make a left and I made a right. And we were in, ended up in the same room. And here we are now in the same stratosphere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the buzzwords <clears throat> of, of the age is authenticity. Yes. Does authenticity always mean honesty? And and even hmm. though you talked about being able to admit your own kind of foibles and, and there was that gag and I'm just a jealous prick, um, <laughs> can we be totally honest? You know, can a comedian philosopher dump all of themselves on stage? You know, what's and all? You still have to hold something back. Yeah, I think you can. You know, I think you, you're you can really just let it out there. I've let it out there. I've let a lot of stuff out that I w- would normally keep in. I've, I've held on to a little bit for myself, but I don't really have anything to hide anymore. I, this is who I am, and I'm proud of who I've become. I'm proud of my foibles. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I like fun words, and foibles is a great one. Um, you know, I know, I know who I am, and, you know, that I said this, I say this often because it really strikes me powerfully is they asked Michelangelo how he made that statue of David out of that block of marble. And he says, like, just chipped away at the pieces that weren't him. And to me, that's everything. So what I've done is I've gotten rid of a lot of the bullshit, most of it, that I've gotten from religion or politics or advertising, saying that you're a piece of shit and that um, we have the answer to make you not, as opposed to going, why don't you just stop listening to this bullshit and just be who you are and not be afraid to be who you are. And I'm not afraid to be who I am. But isn't there a potential contradiction because, and and you tell me if I'm wrong here, right? So you're not afraid to be who you are, but ultimately being a comedian is about some level of acceptance and people liking you. Yes and no. I, I I will say that being liked is fun, but if you go out to have everyone like you, then you be then you're not really as effective as if you can, you know. You tell your truth. That's why I like Dave Chappelle so much because he just comes out and tells his truth, and not everyone likes him. So when people tell me, you know, that Chappelle, he said this, I go, well, he's not here to please you. So if you don't like him, you know, turn the channel, go watch somebody else, find you know. We, that's the thing that you end up. I ended up learning only a few years ago doing a podcast with these uh, two people in Finland called "We're Not Here to Please You," and I I was a guest on there, and I it just opened my my eyes. I was like, yes, I'm not here to please you. So it's not that I want to hurt someone. It's not that I want to do the opposite or I want to piss people off. But I do. I tell my truth in the way I see it in my funny way. And if it pleases people, that's fantastic. But if it doesn't, at least I'm staying true to my story, and that feels much more powerful. Like, again, uh, with dating. You go on a date with someone that they agree with everything you say, and they have no backbone because they just want to be liked. It's really not alluring. Yet, someone who stands up for what they believe in, but caring enough to respect what you believe in, and to share why they believe the way they believe, I think is much more beautiful and romantic and alluring you know what though if they agree with everything that you said you might end up in bed faster yeah 
that's what happened. Yeah. And but, there is that. Um, yeah. But but to go back seriously to the point though, you need that feedback loop of maybe taking the audience to the edge, but then them going. Not only was that funny, that was thoughtful, and he's been really honest. But if you go one step too further, you know, you won't get that round of applause. You know, the place won't book you again. You know, you potentially- well, well, just to cut you off for a second, I'm not looking for a round of applause. I'm looking for laughter. You know, round of applause is, you know, uh, it, that's not my business. I'm not. Okay, not you, get the, you get the round of applause right at the end. At the end. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So, no. but then if you don't get the laughter, just say you put your whole warts and all self on that stage in that routine for ten minutes, and and it falls flat, and then you go back and you say, "I'm going to work on this again. I'm going to, need to tweak this gag, that line, whatever." I know because this is really this is me. This is me, right? And I'm going to subvert the audience's. Um, perception of what the punchline is going to be and you do all of that and then you get rejected surely at some point you have to uh because i'm guessing that your your apartment you've still got bills to pay right that ultimately you are in the acceptance business because you need to pay your bills right but if you can get paid to do it without getting everyone's acceptance getting you know yeah, pleasing yourself and making money at it, like Dave Chappelle does, or Bill Burr, or Maria Bamford, or you know, I can name names up and down the, the list. People who do what they they do, and it's different than what a lot of people do. I think it's much more rewarding. Like one of the best compliments I ever got from these four Mormon women in in Idaho after the show um, said, "We don't agree with what you said about religion, but we respect the way you brought it up." And that meant a lot to me because they had to come over to me to tell me that. Mm. It's not like I seek them out, sought them out. You know, so to me, I like approval. I've always loved approval. And I've been in positions where people don't like me, not because of who I am, because of what I represent. Like when I, I booked the comedians on the David Letterman show, and I could, I have to, I had to say no to 99.9% of the people. And those 99.9% of the people were not always happy that they weren't part of the 0001%. And there's nothing I can do about it except holding the show hostage and forcing, you know, 24 hours of straight comedy with one comedian after another after another. Mm-hmm. But that, that, could, that wouldn't happen. Um, so what you do, you know, it was really hard for me to, to not be liked by some people and who didn't really have a reason not to like me. They, I mean, some people might. But I know for a fact, I met a lot of people who would say, you know, you're such a nice guy. You're not an asshole like I thought you would be. And I think that's because people said, well, he's the booker and he's not booking me. Fuck that guy. And uh, I've gotten that, you know, from some people. So, again, I've learned it's very hard not to, you know, I've always wanted to be, I always wanted to be a people pleaser. And the fact that I can bring it up now that I do want to please people. I want to please you. I want to please your audience. I want to feel good about myself, but I don't want to walk away going, look, I'm just kissing his ass just to make him happy and his crowd who watches this happy. I want a combination. Tell us one comedian who, in hindsight, you should have booked who you didn't. You go, you know what? Um, 
I got that wrong. No, I, I can give you a thousand. I mean, you know, there are so many I wanted a book, but I just didn't have the time. The people I booked, I was proud of booking them. It's the, you know, there are so many people. I remember there's a guy, Gerard Car- Carmichael, who was one of really phenomenal. And um, Damon Wayans, who's one of my favorite comedians of all time. And I didn't book either of them, not for for different reasons. Not that I didn't book them. I booked other people. And in hindsight, Damon Wayans should have been on the show. He's really literally one of my favorite all-time comedians. I don't know what happened there. And Gerard, I, I was done booking when it was his turn that he should have been on. He's just a funny, smart guy. Plus, that's just picking names, you know. Okay. Does it weigh on you at all? Not that you can, you're responsible for someone's career, but in effect, you had one of the most important jobs in comedy. You know, you had the yeah, potential. And he, I, you, but what you had the potential to give a comedian a national spotlight, right? Which I did. I did it for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, probably, you know. Few hundred, three, uh, three hundred, four, three hundred and fifty comedians, or well, not that many because some, some people repeat it. But uh, yeah, I, but I never thought like that because it only gets in your way. I don't think like, okay, well, here I'm going to help someone's career. I hear someone makes me laugh, someone who I think would make David Letterman laugh, and now I book them. You know, I have to of course go through the producers and the, all the stuff and get them approved and whatever. But yeah, but I never. It's just it. It's just extra weight that was is unnecessary to sit there and go. You know, I I'm the gatekeeper. I can change people's lives. Looking back in retrospect, yes, I was the gatekeeper. I could have helped people's lives, and I did. And when I did that, I did it as a comedian, knowing what they're going through, knowing what it's like for me to want to be in that position. And you know, I I I'm most proud of the fact that I learn the psychology of it. And I would tell comedians before they went out there, I said, look, I'm not doing you a favor by putting you on the show. You earned it. So go out and let the audience know that. You know, and it was like, oh, wow, yeah. And so I think that I'm proud most of that kind of psychological way to uh, to let people know that, hey, then it's the truth. I wasn't lying. They got the show not because they were a certain kind of person or whatever. They were funny. And that was the bottom line. And they also matched the style of comedy that the show had for 33 years. What was more important, making you laugh or what you, what you thought was going to make David Letterman laugh? I, um, because it was a David Letterman show, it was more about making him laugh the most. Although it was great when we could both laugh. And it mostly worked that way, mostly. But it was more important. It's like if you write for the Bob Newhart show, you got to write in Bob's voice. And if you don't write in his voice, he's... And make him laugh. He's not going to do the line. Mm-hmm. That was the Eddie Brill show. I would. It would have been different in a lot of ways. There would have been comedians that were turned down that I would have put on the show in a second. Why don't we have the Eddie Brill show, Eddie? Um, there's a lot of reasons for it, and a lot of them have to do with the fact that I stopped being a full time comedian, although I did, still did a lot, and became more of a booker and someone thought of as that and not a a host of a show and i'm sort of i'm not sort of i'm making up for it now by full force create you know i do every day of the week i do a an instagram live Uh, today tonight will be number 91 in a row 
and then um i do the sunday night show on uh the clubhouse app where i bring in what i would say are the best you know comics around and some of the best ever i had you know it's bill burr and stephen wright and caroline ray and Susie esman uh have henry winkler and brian regan i'm very proud i just got larry charles to say yes larry charles one of the most prolific writers hilarious writers of all time wrote seinfeld you know larry sanders herb your enthusiasm directed borat i mean he has a every he's just the ultimate to me and and he agreed to do the show and and uh, there's 52 sundays in a year and i'd like to find 52 of the greatest name you know greatest minds in the business and bring them to the forefront and let young comics hear what they have to say and clubhouse is great and clubhouse is how how we met and um but i should be on clubhouse mouthing off or more to the point listening i think the 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 key to clubhouse is you gotta do a lot of listening so when then you say something it's meaningful there's a lot of people on there do a whole lot of talking but you should do a whole lot of listening and then you you say something meaningful i find myself leaving rooms where people are just just talking talking and they don't let other people talk there's a real there are fundamentally two types of rooms there are the stages where a topic is being discussed and and invariably you get you know you get the host and so the moderator and then there's some kind of expert and they can go go at it and stuff the best rooms are the social rooms where yes. it's a dinner party you know i keep saying to people it's a dinner party where you just got great dinner party guests you don't know who's necessarily sat next to you but they can hold their own in one or two topics, but they've got enough generalist knowledge that they can chime in on others. And conversation will start somewhere, and you've no idea where it's going to end up. No idea. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. But also, at the same and that's my favorite too, but by doing this Sunday night show I do every week, I'm aiming to create the Eddie Brill Show and to create a show that would make everyone who's at the dinner party get together and go, hey, um, I'll see you Sunday night. We're going to go to see Eddie's show. But don't you want HBO, Eddie? You know, I'm okay with Again, it would be great. It would be fine, more financially terrific. But if I have an incredible show on Clubhouse and somebody from HBO comes in and goes, oh, my God, look what this guy's doing, then they probably they might knock at my door. But if I walk into HBO and say, I got this idea, that's okay in my work. But if they, they hear about my show, they're, you know, I'm very proud of it. And it's only, I've only done it six weeks and uh, it's just gotten better all the time. And there's a lot of, as Mr. T would say, jibber jabber about what I, <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> How many black Englishmen do you have on that show so far? So far, um, the only black person that i have I, very is, specific black englishman zero. black englishman it's very specific zero. six weeks zero doesn't mean i didn't ask black englishmen it didn't mean i didn't ask uh i don't want to say their names because they're in the negotiation eddie, period eddie i respectfully say to you i'm calling that racism on this you know, how how inclusive is your show sir um it's it's fantastic <laughs> i have I, I do have 
it doesn't matter the number, but there are four black comics who I have called already to be on the show, and all four of them said that we will do it, but we can't do it this week. Eddie, I don't care about African Americans. I'm on about the Black Brits. I'm on about I, but anyway, I, anyway, it was a plug for me. It's a plug for me. So if the call comes from HBO, great, but you're not going out courting it. You're you're quite happy with it being on Clubhouse, and I take it you're looking forward to the comedy circuit being resumed. Yeah, I mean, I would love to get back in the clubs and and get back to that place where I was just before it. Um, but also at the same time, I'm enjoying these other pursuits. I I love stand-up, number one. And uh, say I love it, number two, as well. <laughs> but, all, but all the other things like creating shows and producing and creating content and writing and, uh, you know, doing characters, I love all of that stuff. I, you know, I, I'm working every day. I have four interviews today two where I'm being interviewed, two where I'm interviewing people. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also coming to Clubhouse to support someone who has a sh- show tonight. And then when I'm done at midnight tonight, I'm going to, when I laid my head down, I'm, you know, it's going to have been a, a very fulfilling day of doing all the, these amazing things. Uh, so far, it's been an amazing day. And I make sure that each day is amazing. Or I, I make sure I have the opportunity that they can be amazing. I put myself in a position. Who are you sharing your intimate moments with, your special moments with Eddie? Um, intimate, like a girlfriend intimacy. I am at well, that. Well, you know, that, that I realize as soon as I said it, that's what you. I'm too easy predict- to believe. Hmm? Right. I was too predictable on that one. Well, I, you can't, yeah, he didn't. You know what? It's one of the things which, yeah, I'm a boring heterosexual guy. Um, but as people keep on saying to me, just because that's your reality doesn't mean it's anybody else's. In terms of inter- intimacy, doesn't need to necessarily be sexual. It could be intellectual right. intimacy. You know. Well, I I am I am blessed with a, a huge conglomerate conglomeration of people who I have this intellectual intimacy with. It's and I have a small group of like four or five people, including the gang of four where we get together and we, we share that. Um, before the pandemic, I had uh, talked to a incredibly incredible woman who didn't live in the New York area, and the pandemic sort of destroyed that chance at least to be intimate. And, um, and that's kind of a shame. I, and I wrote a joke out of it. I said, you know, I live alone, and during the pandemic, I've been alone. And I realized I hadn't pl- pleasured myself in three days, and I was like, is, that, is it something I said? <laughs> it was just me just me and uh and then you know so i like intimacy on all levels i like it with with the partner i like it uh and uh, i like the intimacy having my partner to be between the ears just as much as between the legs but i also admit that i have that intimacy with incredible people and i talked to a lot of them already today and you know just by chatting with you I'm have to, I am paying attention. Like if I was, you know, there are texts coming in and there are in, instant messages coming through and all this other stuff. But the only thing that matters in the world right now is me and you having a chat. Mm. You know, it's made me feel incredibly guilty because I just, 
texted somebody back who actually just called me. So, uh, so I've had three four that I wanted to, but I figured I can't, I can't really do that <laughs> in this scenario. But you, I saw you look with your eyes a couple of times, and I knew that you were because the eyes don't lie. Um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. There's a, a sort of suggestive picture on my screen that I didn't put up there. I just was clicking, and then all of a sudden, Zoom went. And it's kind of funny because it's like it's kind of a, it's kind of nice to look at at the same time as everything else. Is it hard, do you think, being uh, a prospective partner uh, of Eddie Brill? I, I'm guessing that a prospective girlfriend, you, you know, you're auditioning, you're auditioning for the role, you know, <laughs> and they're bringing your, your best self, which is going to be somewhat formidable. They're bringing their best self, which is going to be formidable, but potentially in a very different way. Right. I can imagine how that could be somewhat intimidating. I don't, again, I don't, I try not to look at it that way. And I find out in these kind of questions or through other people, that people look at me in an intimidating way. And see, I'm looking out and I don't, myself, I just see the world as I'm looking out. And uh, so I don't see myself as being intimidating. I find myself to be a very lucky man who is doing what he loves for a living and at the same time, I mean, doing what I love for a living is really great. And also, not I'm not thinking like you had asked me earlier, you know, of all of the, like, am I happy that I'm helped changing someone's career? Someone has used the word gatekeeper. I don't, when I'm looking out, I don't look at that. I look at myself as one of the folks. And every once in a while, people will, I'll get into a room on Clubhouse and then it's a Q&A and I'm the, I'm the person that everyone's asking questions for. And I'm totally happy and charmed that I, I get to have that. But at the same time, there are nights when I just want to go into that room and just stay in the background and just listening to these incredible conversations. You know, I've had incredible girlfriends in my life. And for different reasons, they the relationships uh, changed or people grew apart or whatever. And uh, I don't regret any of it. I just thought, okay, life is a series of relationships. And I just had this most incredible three years with this incredible person. And for some reason, they're, you know, it's almost like marriage. I, you want, I'd like, I think it would be good if it would be like a three-year contract. At the end of three years, you can get a chance to either renew or say, it was really nice three years. Thank you for everything. And uh, I wish you the best. Eddie Brill, we have to wish you the best as well. I, I would like to do this again. And uh, we really should. I do a thing called afternoon tea on Clubhouse. Okay. And uh, the conceit is that I'm running a tea shop somewhere in England, and but it's an, a select and august uh, salon, sir. And uh, to gain in uh, to gain entry into the salon, you have to answer this one very important question, mm. Eddie. Yes. How do you take your tea? Um, black. Expand on that, sir. Plain, just, just, just. English breakfast. Chamomile. Oh. Earl Grey. Uh, peppermint. Peppermint is one of my no, favorites. Wow. Already you've gained admission to afternoon tea. What we're going to have to do, try and do is finagle it somehow so we can get, get you in. It's my ridiculous The Art of Conversation show, uh, which seems to be uh, gathering some level of momentum on the app. And we'd love to have you as a member. 
So send me an invitation, please. Uh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely will. And um, Eddie, bro, it's been a nutter joy and a pleasure speaking to you. My, I, I, you know what? I, I was a fan before, more so now. Oh, it's very lovely. I, we knew very little about each other except we were we were standing next to each other in the app, and uh, and here we are standing across from each other in different cities. The wonders of, of, of modern technology. The world is shrinking, and because it's shrinking, we can make more friends. Eddie Brill, thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. We will talk on again, sir. Thank you. Bye bye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.